Welcome to PathPod. I'm Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is Episode 5 of PathPod. Today we have our second episode of PathPod News Edition. Our returning host today is Dr. Meredith Pittman. You can find her on Twitter at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T. And you'll hear the interview that she recorded on May 5th, 2020 with Dr. Kyle Annan of Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Annan is a blood banker who's been collecting convalescent plasma to treat patients with COVID-19. And here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. As parts of the United States begin a phased reopening, there is concern that new cases of COVID-19 will begin to rise. In the absence of a vaccine, physicians are desperate for reliable treatment options, and this week does bring some hope. First, the FDA issued emergency use authorization of the antiviral drug remdesivir after two trials showed that the medication decreased the time to recovery in severely ill patients. Second, there are ongoing studies of COVID-19 convalescent plasma as an investigational product, with some reports that these plasma transfusions improve patient outcomes. We have with us today Dr. Kyle Annan, Assistant Professor of Pathology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the Medical Director of Transfusion Services and Patient Blood Management at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Annan was the first in Colorado to collect COVID-19 plasma. Dr. Annan, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we jump into coronavirus-specific questions, can you explain to our med student listeners and those of us who haven't thought about transfusion for a while, why plasma from someone who has recovered from a virus would be of interest? Sure. Well, convalescent plasma, if we take a step back, any FFP product, so if I'm saying FFP, it's fresh frozen plasma, so plasma that's been separated from the red cells and the white cells in a blood transfusion, um, any FFP product has antibodies in it. So every, we all make antibodies all the time to every, you know, every virus you've ever been exposed to. And so that plasma is going to have a mix of antibodies to virus, to other, corona, to other coronaviruses, the, you know, the kind that cause the common cold, um, the kind that cause the flu. And so we're actually kind of always giving an antibody, uh, uh, antibody treatment with FFP. Now, no one ever uses it that way. Ah. Um, but really, there's always just antibodies in there. In this particular case, we're collecting plasma from someone who has recovered from COVID-19, whose antibody ratio should be, you know, very, very dramatically tilted toward having antibodies for specific for COVID. Okay. And the idea for that, the idea on that is that by giving this plasma that is so full of antibodies to someone who is currently sick with COVID, that those antibodies go in and actually neutralize the virus. Okay. And we actually do have some studies that where we look at some of these convalescent plasma, and we've actually done this on three of our own um, donors, and found that their antibodies in their plasma um, did, in fact, neutralize COVID-19 virus. Very um, interesting. Yeah. So if, we are, if we're able to transfuse it into a sick patient, hopefully that reduces their viral load and maybe helps get them kind of back on track. Great. And... Back when you started hearing about this new coronavirus, what was it about coronavirus specifically that made you think your center should start to be prepared to collect this plasma? Has, has this been done in prior epidemics? 
It has. It actually was done as far back as the 1918 Spanish flu. Wow. Um, I don't have any studies from that. I just know that it happened. Um, <laughs> obviously, back then, we hadn't even mastered all of our blood types yet. So uh, I can only imagine how many other complications they had. Right. Um, but yeah, it was done that far back. More recently, uh, there was a small randomized controlled trial that was done for H1N1. Um, that was only about 10 or 15 patients, I think. It did suggest that convalescent plasma worked, um, but, you know, small study, so hard to be definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I kind of knew about this. And back right around the first cases of COVID-19 being reported in Colorado, which was early March, um, one of my colleagues mentioned that he had heard that convalescent plasma had been used in Wuhan, China. Okay. And so I kind of went to the literature and did a little bit of a literature review and looked at this and was kind of debating whether or not my center should actually start doing this. And the reason we were debating it is because, fortunately, COVID has not been that hard hit in kids. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, with children not being that severely impacted, certainly there have been kids that have been severely impacted, but in, in general, it's the older population. Here I am at a children's hospital. Right. Should I be trying to figure out how to do this or should I just be focusing on balancing the blood supply? <laughs> so, um, which was a whole nother issue. So, you know, so I initially wasn't, was kind of leaning towards, well, maybe we should do this, but let's see if we want to do it. I was talking to the infectious disease um, and ICU teams at my hospital saying like, you know, do you think that this is something we want to have available? And then one day, that all just kind of dramatically changed because my colleague over at one of the adult hospitals called me and said that they had a patient who was critically ill. The family was, you know, absolutely determined to get him convalescent plasma mm-hmm. and um, no one was able to collect it in Colorado yet. The, oh, um, okay. the major larger blood centers in the area um, weren't ready to start collecting it for probably another week at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and of note, at this time, the FDA had literally just approved it. It was like okay. three days after the FDA had approved it that I got okay. the call. So they weren't ready to implement yet um, as far as the larger collection centers. And so I tried to figure, I was like, well, can I figure out how to do this? And at, at that point, it was just all full speed ahead. Okay. So you received the call that there's a sick patient that needs this convalescent plasma. What I, I can only imagine how complicated that had to be. How, what were your next steps for you to actually collect, test, and then distribute this plasma? So the first step was reading the FDA guidance to make mm-hmm. sure that all of, all of the things that we were trying to do, you know, I, I needed to know exactly what the criteria that the FDA had set up um, for a convalescent plasma collection to make sure we could follow all of those rules because the FDA is all about rules. Um, sure. And so I wanted to make sure that we were doing everything in a compliant fashion. I actually called the FDA to check in and say, what is it that I need to do as a collection facility that maybe I'm not thinking about? Okay. Um, in the meantime, I think probably the biggest lift for everybody um, of everyone who helped me work on this was um, our IT um, person who did an amazing job. She sat down and kind of um, reprogrammed the label. So blood products all have to have a label that is ISBT compliant. And there is one for convalescent plasma. Okay. Um, and in order to use that label to properly label the, the product and to put it in our computer system and track it appropriately and follow all of the regulations for tracking this, 
we had to have this label. Um, so she like worked so hard to get this programmed very, very quickly. And mm -hmm. it was amazing. She actually had it done in like eight hours. Um, <laughs> when we initially thought it would take a week. Okay. <laughs> so, so that, I think that was probably the biggest lift of everybody. Um, we also had to, we well, had to find a donor. So uh -huh. I started calling some people that had said, we, you know, had called recently and said, I had COVID. When am I eligible to just donate blood again? So um, I called some of those guys back to see if anyone could come in. Um, and then the criteria was that you had to have a negative, uh, you had to have a confirmed positive PCR test. So I had to find someone who had proven COVID, actually been tested, right. right? Which, you know, was not a ton of people at that point. Right. And then I also had to prove now that they were not shedding virus. So they uh -huh. had to have a negative COVID-19 test. So I had okay. to have them come in, go through our drive-through. Uh, we had a drive-through PCR test set up. Fortunately, we had in-house PCR available. Excellent. Um, they got, you know, she got her nasal pharyngeal swab. Um, and then uh, when that was done, uh, we actually had the donor wait uh, in our blood donor center with a mask on and they waited for a couple of hours for these test results to come back. Oh, wow. And then, and then once they came back and they were negative, um, and the donor still has to pass all the other blood criteria. So they had to answer all the blood donor right. questions and make sure they were eligible. And then once all of those hoops got jumped through, we were able to collect the product. And we already had the settings for on, um, on our um, automated system to be able to collect an apheresis plasma. Okay. So that part was no problem. Um, it was really just kind of making sure that the specific things that made it convalescent plasma as opposed to regular plasma mm -hmm. were all followed. Okay. So, um, and then the last, the last challenge in this was once we got that product, we had to send it out for infectious disease testing because you still have to do that part before you can release it. And that's actually okay. what took the longest of everything. Okay. Was getting it on a plane because there's reduced flights and sending it to the centralized testing center and getting those test results back um, in order for us to finalize the product and release it in our computer system. Um, so we actually got all of that first part done in about eight hours, like about eight hours from the phone call. I had uh -huh. the first product in hand. And then we had to wait almost another 24 hours for the second part of it before we were able to send it over to the hospital for transfusion. I have to say, of all the issues I thought you were going to raise, being able to print an appropriate label and find a flight for the plasma were not two of the things I was expecting you to bring up, but uh, really good points about just the, all of the steps that have to take place for these, for uh, these patients to be treated appropriately. Wow. That's, that is really, really interesting. So once you did this for one patient, did you already have a written protocol in place or did you then write up your protocol for future plasma collection oh yeah that was all after the fact okay I mean, we, we, kind of, <laughs> we, we figured it out we knew we were doing the right thing um we knew we were we, we knew we were checking all the boxes and doing everything compliant um but then after we kind of did that first collection and had worked through the steps was when we actually wrote our standard operating procedure um developed some forms you know kind of protocolized it a little bit more okay um because, yeah, we, I mean, we had no idea we were going to do it. So we, wouldn't have, <laughs> we hadn't even right. decided for sure that we were going to do it. And then it was just all of a sudden, like, let's go. Right. So. And so you said you had to call the FDA. So am, do I understand correctly that right now the FDA still has this COVID convalescent plasma listed as an investigational product? Yes, that's correct. It is still considered an investigational new drug by the FDA. 
Um, and so because of that, um, I, I mainly called the FDA because I wanted to know if there was anything specific for a blood collection center that needed uh-huh. to be done because the protocol they had written out was really focused on how the physician could obtain plasma for their patients uh-huh. and then what testing needed to be done in order to collect it. But they didn't really clarify as to um, any, you know, like nuances as far as do I have to file an application? Do I have to file some kind of paperwork myself before I was allowed to collect? I see. Um, so that was really what I wanted to make sure of before I um, started this process. Because sure. in my sure. line of work, you don't, do not want to make the FDA mad. No, no, definitely not. None of us want to make the FDA mad. So, so you identified some patients who may have been appropriate for plasma collection. But at this point, now that we know a certain number of people in the United States have had and recovered from COVID-19, can just anyone who thinks they've had COVID-19 go and donate plasma? I mean, you see on social media people being like, go donate your plasma for, to help COVID-19 patients. But is that something that, that people can do or should do or may want to do? Well, there's some nuance to this. So the FDA has updated their regulatory guidance a number of times, and the most recent one was actually Friday. Um, and the most recent guidance does allow for a potential convalescent plasma donor to be accepted um, or deemed eligible based on a positive COVID antibody test. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that pathway. Now, it depends on the blood center or the blood collection center's own decision process as to whether or not they're going to uh, do that by providing their own screening. So every donor who comes in, they send it to the same testing platform and do that test initially, okay. whether they would bring somebody in and collect that product. And then if it turns out they didn't have the antibodies, have to throw it away. Um, or whether they would accept a test from another outside testing source, because as we know, there's dozens of them popping up all over the country um, to try to test for the presence of COVID IgG. Right. And you, you were facilitating this plasma collection all the way back in early April, correct? And we're now in early May. So have other patients been treated in Colorado with plasma that you've collected, or are you currently engaged in any sort of research with this convalescent plasma? Yeah, so um, after that first patient, we actually ramped up our program. Uh, We kind of worked through the process, you know, kind of as we went along and figured out some glitches. There were lots of unexpected things that came up and we kind of had to work through each time. But I can tell you that uh, as of yesterday, we've had 156 donors. Wow. Um, We've collected 326 convalescent plasma units, and those have gone to 17 different hospitals in Colorado. And as of yesterday, we shipped a box of convalescent plasma to a hospital in Utah. Um, That's wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. So we've, we've been able to collect a lot. Um, I think the thing that's exciting for me, um, you know, being an, an academic um, pathologist is that we do have some research projects that we want to work on kind of more on the donor side. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're shipping this all to a outside, we're shipping all of our products to an outside facility. Um, it's really difficult for us to try to gather outcomes data because it kind of disappears and then we have to try to you know, <laughs> sure. maybe get some information back. Right. 
Um, and you know, there's HIPAA and everything compliance with that too. So, um, but we are looking at our, uh, some research for our donors. So one of the big questions is, you know, how long do these antibodies stay around? Um, if we have a donor come in and we test their antibody levels, and then they come in again in a week later or a month later for another collection, um, how, you know, are those antibodies still present? If they are, if they're still at a, an, a level that's high enough to be clinically effective, uh -huh. um, that sort of thing. So we're, we're trending our, our donors to see if they are, you know, kind of declining in their antibody levels. Um, we're also putting together a survey to look at the kind of severity of the disease and some other demographic information and trying to compare that to the antibody strength to see if, you know, more severe disease correlates with more antibody or okay. if someone's younger versus older, if that correlates with more antibodies. So sure. Some of those kinds of things. Um, just to try to see like if there, is there, you know, you know, a, you know, an ideal donor, is there a specific kind of a specific donor group that we know is going to provide us with more robust antibody um, in the convalescent plasma. Right. So you're talking about ideal donors, but also on the clinical side, they're trying to figure out, you know, who's the ideal recipient. And it seems from what I've read that, that right now we're reserving this plasma therapy for the sickest patients. And what, what would be the reasoning behind not using it for patients who, say, have less severe symptoms? So initially, when convalescent plasma first became available, um, I think the majority of patients who were getting it were the most sick because it was a very limited supply. And because it's an investigational drug under, at the time it was only EIND, so it was considered a compassionate use therapy. It was almost a little bit of a Hail Mary, like let's give this and hope that this is like the, you know, kind of their last option uh -huh. to try to save them. Um, and since then, there have been a number of different trials at all different ranges. Um, of using convalescent plasma. So there are some studies that are looking at patients who are critically ill, already ventilated. Some of them are on ECMO and giving it to those groups. Um, there are some trials that are trying to give convalescent plasma earlier with the idea that maybe if they get it while they are in kind of the severe respiratory distress phase, it might prevent them from getting on a ventilator or help them to get off a ventilator more quickly. Uh -huh. um, and and then there's even some randomized controlled trials that are getting rolling now that are looking at actually giving convalescent plasma as post-exposure prophylaxis to someone who is high risk. So someone oh, who has an underlying disease, diabetes, you know, cardiac disease, lung disease that would potentially be predicted to have a severe disease course. Um, but then giving them that, that, uh, convalescent plasma early on, maybe before the virus has had a chance to significantly repl replicate in, with the idea that maybe it would kind of prevent things from getting worse. Sure, um, sure. So yeah, there's, there's all different ranges now. And as convalescent plasma becomes more and more available, we can start thinking about those kinds of things more. Um, I think early on, it was just um, kind of, let's, you know, let's hope this works in someone who's just really, really ill and we don't know what else to do. Right. Of course, because as we know, transfusion comes with its own risks. Exactly. One of the things that um, I think I want people to remember is that, you know, convalescent plasma or any plasma is still a blood product. There's still the risk of other infectious diseases besides COVID. Uh, there's still the risk of transfusion related acute lung injury. That's particularly a problem for plasma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're following all the right FDA guidelines, but I mean, 
trolley is still the leading cause of death from a blood transfusion. Okay. So it's, it's not something that should be, it should still be weighted in a risk benefit scenario. Um, when you're thinking about what is the risk to this person compared to their risk of getting worse with COVID. Right. Dr. Annan, this has been incredibly interesting. I admit I didn't know anything about convalescent plasma until I started reading in preparation for our interview today. Uh, and I've learned a lot for you. Uh, is there anything else um, on this topic that we haven't discussed yet that you want to highlight for our listeners? Um, I would like to say that for anyone who does not, you know, who isn't eligible to donate convalescent plasma, either because they weren't able to get that initial PCR test and their local blood donor center isn't accepting that, you know, pro an alternative process, um, or, you know, or maybe just still really, really wants to do something to help, but they haven't had COVID, so they can't give convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a nationwide blood shortage. Some places in the country have had a 30% reduction in their blood donations. And wow. um, if someone had COVID and uh, or they think they had COVID after 28 days of no symptoms, you're eligible to donate blood the regular way okay. again. Um, so I would still encourage people that even if they can't do the convalescent plasma, that regular blood donation is still really, really important right now. That's a very important message and something that we don't often think of when we're in the moment of, you know, a health crisis for other reasons. Thank you so much, Dr. Annan, for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate your time because I'm sure you are quite busy with all of your responsibilities. <laughs> it's been a little crazy lately. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of PathPod News Edition. And we will be back with you with a new interview next week. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link, and be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.